When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The old days, but nothing changed, less you change What's around you, how you think, how you live, how you speak, how you walk, how you blank, how you talk, how you teach, how you reach, let it sink. What's your purpose? What's your passion? Is it pain? What's your plan? Is it plain? On a plane? How's your plane? How's your plan? What's your purpose? What's your passion? Did it pain? We are here, we are here, we are present, we are accounted for. This is Plug with Molly and Joe. I am Molly, that is Joe. We are plugged in today, the Mental Warriors coming at you, 7 o'clock on the dot every week on a Thursday. This is where we're at, this is what we're doing, this is what we love. So far, so good, right? Joe, what you think? Oh, Joe, you're muted, bro. You're muted. You're muted, Joe. You're muted. Uh-oh. Hey, 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 hey. You're muted again. <laughs> See? I'm muted again? No, I'm not. <laughs> I said we still here. We ready. We got a voice. People want to hear us. People want to listen to us. So I'm glad that we still here, man. We hitting the home stretch of our first season, man. Ain't that something? Right. We got Almost. like a month and a half and we done for the Almost. first season. Almost the halfway mark, right? Yeah, that's nope. actually that's the halfway mark, man. We here, we're doing it. We keep doing it. I love it. I, 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 you know, enjoy this. This is our introduction piece where we talk about a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Nothing really major. Nothing really, you know, fascinating. Sometimes it's fascinating. Who knows? You know, it might draw you in with something. What we're talking about, but we're gonna talk about. The Brooklyn Nets is out of here. <laughs> Where Brooklyn at? Where Brooklyn at? We right here. Our network producer um, has a problem with that. You know, last week he was riding high, really, really happy about things, how things was looking over there in Brooklyn. And then the bottom fell out. I don't know what happened, but my personal opinion is Steve Nash was prepared for prepared to coach that team. He should have been coaching that team. Um, that's some, you know, that's that sy- sy- systemic oppression as usual. Because if you ask me, it's all. Listen, I'm telling you, man. Dan Tony and Steve Nash got a job before a lot of these brothers that was very well qualified to get that job to have three stars at once. You know. Like, I think his, you know, for someone's first ever coaching job, that was pretty cushy, you know, a, a cushy job to have, no? It, it was a lot of personalities that they had to handle. KD, James Harden, Harden, and Kyrie. Like, that's a lot to deal with in one season. And the right. fact that you kept getting injured didn't help none either. You know what I mean? So, like, if they were all on the floor during that Milwaukee series, I think they would have beat Milwaukee in five. But the fact that Harden and Kyrie got hurt, you know, that's pretty much a wrap on it. Yeah, I mean, injured or what should I say, um, manage, you know, load management, as Kyrie would put it. I mean, um, Kawhi would put it, load management, whatever they were doing. I mean, I don't know. Chemistry was important. 
And the fact that they couldn't get on the court at the same time, like you said, in that series really hurt them. Um, but give shout out to the brothers that's on the squad. Kyrie, one of the more conscious brothers out there. I think he's very misunderstood in a lot of things that he's doing. Um, KD, I feel like he's getting there. I think he's going to start making more noise and social, you know, and social and social um, issues and, and, and the such, you know, being with Kyrie and James Harden is just James Harden. I don't know. He's a little weird. Well, it's funny. There was just an article talking about, I saw on a total sports pro where they were silently protesting the whole season and nobody knew it. Like mm-hmm. they would add it into their routine like right before the Star Spangled Banner was played, they would leave the court and not come in. So you wouldn't even realize that they were protesting. So people, I, I don't know if it's, if it's going to become of anything or if it's going to be any like grievance behind it, but that's pretty smart on that part. You know, Kyrie seems like that type of brother that he's silent with his words, but you could tell when he's taking action. And I can appreciate that. Like you don't have to be loud to get your point across. Right, right, Exactly. Um, and the school year is happening. Yay to the kids. I'm listen, the kids went through another strange year, you know. And now it's post pandemic, they keep calling it as if, like, when did the pandemic end? I don't know, but yay to the educators, yeah, yay to the educators. Yes, yes, indeed. I heard that it was really, really tough on them as well. They were expected to do so much more. Almost like the whole Bible theory of you know making brick out of straw, but they ain't you know making making, making brick out of straw, but you got to find the straw, you know. Right. Um, but end of the school year, applause to the kids, applause to the teachers. You know, glad these kids are still learning, even you know in a different time, in a different way. Yeah, I I I I, I heard the teachers were stressed. It says it's not over yet. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. You know, they keep talking about post-pandemic. I don't get that one. But what's coming up on the show, this show that you'll be able to see on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Anchor.fm, Spotify, Radio, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, iTunes Podcasts, TheEveningRushNetwork.com. You can see us on Plug with Molly and Joe on Facebook. You can also see us on Instagram. MJ um, plugged MJ at plugged MJ on Instagram. Um, those are all the platforms. Actually, tune in. We're going to be on oh, Pandora also, and tune in. We're going to be on other platforms. Um, I believe it's supposed to be television platforms. Yeah, yes, the parents were stressed. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, the parents were stressed as well. Me being one of the parents, yeah, it was it was pretty stressful. To I mean. Because you're responsible for, you know, you're set, you're somewhat responsible for their learning now. So it's, um, you know, it was a little stressful, and we could see what teachers, you know, go through in this, in a sense as well with the, the pressure of making sure these kids learn, and then they do it times, you know, thirty in a classroom or what have you or whatever number it is. So yes, definitely, the parents are stressed as well. Um, you could call into us at nine two nine four four one two four one seven. That's nine two nine four four one. Two four one seven. We're going to go into our next segment. We're going to go into our next segment, which is paying homage to our ancestors. Yay! We always need to do that. Time to 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 shine light on some of the people in our past that um has done so many um 
great things for the cause. Um, it's it's our time to to show people who who's done you know tremendous things in our personal lives, and we pay homage to like our fathers as we did one time or another. Um, but before we pay homage, what we want to do is I'm gonna have Joe speak to this um, next situation. Okay, so you know how I'm plugged with Molly and Joe. We uh, kind of come up with surprises and we have special people that come and uh, share their stories with us and, you know, break big bread with us, if you will. I have this amazing guest on today. We have this amazing guest on today. She's like a sister from another mister, if you will, for me. And I think that she's going to add a lot of banter to this topic and to this show. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Miss Tiny Shahill. Everybody, super glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you, Tanisha. Welcome to welcome. the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, what we're going to do now, Miss Tanisha? Um, you're new to the show, you're new to our process, what we did, we did our little introduction. Now what we're going to do is we're going to pay homage to one of our ancestors, and we're going to give you a time to think about what ancestor you're going to do there. Um, so, Joe, hit us with that. Ah, since we are still in Black Music History Month, I'm paying attention to this um, honorable person from Nigeria. He was an activist. He was a revolutionary <laughs> he was a musician. The Honorable Fela Kuti. Yes. Listen. Fela. Fela is one of those type of people that would go under the radar if you didn't know. They consider him the godfather of Afrobeat, which is a style that's famous in Nigeria and Africa. Um, he was a revolutionary. He was a social activist. He talked about the things that were important to him and had people thinking. You know, he was like a version of a mental warrior. I often compare him to Bob Marley in Jamaica, you know, because they both come from that same realm of thought when it comes to music. So listening to, you know, Water, uh, Get No Enemies, one of my favorite songs. You know, there's so many that Phil I did. And I think in the 70s when he was thinking this way, you know, to have that music relate to us so much today, like he's still considered to be a pioneer of what music is. And I'm just very grateful that he's an ancestor. So kudos to Phil I, And I hope there's more that comes from you. Indeed. So now you understand how that goes. So, yes. Miss Anisha, we want to know who are you paying homage to? Who you tell our producers you're paying homage to? Uh, I'm paying homage to my grandfather. Oh. Um, my grandfather, his name is Deacon Shumpert Watts. Okay. And he is uh, a gospel promoter, a gospel music promoter uh, from Mississippi. He moved to New York in uh, 1958, right after high school. Uh, was He frequented the Apollo and learned the ins and outs of the music game. Uh, 1964, he started promoting gospel music and producing gospel shows. And then uh, 1990, he started, oh, sorry, 1972, he was a founder, a founding member of Jazz Records. And then 1990, opened his own uh, gospel music uh, record company, and now he is currently 
um, still promoting music on the side. He was a radio host uh, from 1990, from 1982 to, 19, to 2005. And then now he resides in Mississippi and he is the Jasper County NAACP president. Oh. All that. I'm, I'm still kicking at 85. It's my man. Listen, listen here. Like, I'm pretty sure he has so many stories to share. And all of that just sounds like he's played a part in so many different parts of our culture and our history. So, Joe, I think you need to get on that, Joe. I think you need to get on that one, Joe. I think we need to hear from him. <laughs> oh, he would love. He would love to be here. I think I think we need to hear from him, Joe. What you think, Joe? Oh yeah, definitely. Them guys, right. I'm pretty sure he got some stories for sure. Yeah, because I, I was about to start asking you questions about him. Now I'm supposed to be interviewing you. I'm like, oh, <laughs> All right, well, we're, gonna, we're gonna save that. We're gonna save that. Um, yeah, there's no pick for me. All right, um, because I just went off the cuff because I, you know, you could think of one and then come up with one or what have you and all that other stuff. Um, I just went with um, a documentary I was just now watching. It's um, called Slave by Another Name. It's on um, Prime. It's on your, it's on your um, video. Slave by Another Name. Um, narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. And I'm paying homage to um, to one particular young man that was spoken of in the documentary. And his name was Ezekiel Archie. I'm sure you don't know of him as far as the mainstream, you know, freedom fighters and the such and the, and the, and the leaders of the rebellions and all of that. Um, but he's, you know, struck a chord in me because this documentary is about um, the time after the Emancipation Proclamation. OK, um, this is about when our people were supposedly free um, in this country. And um, the South wasn't hearing it. You know, the South was basically losing its biggest moneymaker, which was our people, which was black lives. Mm. We were their biggest moneymaker. And um, after after slavery and when they were supposed to be freed, um, they pulled the strings in many different ways to make sure that um, we were um, in what you would call um, jail. In that sense, you know, what I mean, it's basically it was, you know, in today's time, we call it jail. And that's what I'll say to, be, to keep it simple. Um, but it was actually called something else. I can't recall it off the top of the head. Um, but Ezekiel Archie was caught up in this system of um, going to jail, 25 years old, and he was in the mining. He was in down below in underground mining for this country. And he would write letters and his letters was just calling out of the treachery and everything that happened. The, you know, this is the worst, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen to a human being and all of these different things. And um, they did everything in their in their power to keep him down there, because once you went down there, the, the, the concept was you're going to die down there. Basically, you were going to not um, ever see freedom again in their eyes. So I just wanted to um, give a salute to Ezekiel Archie for getting his letters from from down below in the bellows of the beast and what they went through, you know, and all of this pain and all the struggle and all the suffering that our people has gone through just to even get us, like I said, on a platform plug with Molly and Joe, where Joe is here and Miss Tanisha Hill is here. And um, 
that's where you know it just hit me hard you know basically what what he had to go through just to you know just to survive but salute um with that being said what we're going to do is slide right on miss tanisha you can take yourself off mute miss tanisha. We, we good we, you know Unless you got some background noise, we can't. And some that. background noises, you know. I'm, I I live in a southern household, and I never know what's gonna come out my mother's mouth. So. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, listen, listen. We go with that too. Listen. <laughs> we salute her too. Sure. Listen, that's the that's that's what's up. But yeah, um, current events. That's what we go to next. That's what we we speak to. Um, you can speak to whatever you will know. You can speak to you can not speak. I mean, usually everyone speaks. So we just want to um, go run right into current events. And Joe, you came up with a topic um, this week. Um, um, maybe it was two weeks ago. Maybe it was last week or whatever. And it was talking about the impacts of non-teachings of the non-teachings of critical race theory. Um, First, uh, first and foremost, tell us what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is defined as an academic framework centered on the idea that racism is systemic and not just demonstrated by individual people with prejudices. The theory holds that racial in inequality is woven into legal systems and negatively affects people of color in their schools, doctors, offices, and criminal justice system and countless other parts of life. So when you're thinking of critical race theory, you're explaining the um, the, um, the biasness or the systemic racism that upholds in our communities. Um, the reason why I brought this up to par is because in education, a lot of ed ed system, the education system in the United States, they no longer want to teach critical race theory. Right, but is, is, is it isn't isn't the term critical race theory just some type of scientific um, blah 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 in a sense to what we already know to be I guess you would say black history, you know what I mean? Because that, that's basically yeah the framework for that you know, those that they acknowledge systemic racism. I mean we've come up with these words systemic racism, systemic oppression, and all these other things for the treachery that's been done to black folk all these years. So is that just a uh, a technical way of speaking to what we already know? No, I, I don't think it's technical. What I think it is, because if we still have people who are still shocked and surprised at some of the racism uh, that has occurred and still happening, then critical race, ra uh, critical race theory is important. It's real. It, it makes sense. And I think that's what the problem is. The people who are teaching crit or be teaching this or don't want to teach it are unaware or don't care about the the theories that exist or don't care about the system uh, oppression that exists. You know, they uh, draw a blind eye to it, if you will. And that's where the problem lies. The, the problem is not that critical race theory isn't an issue or a problem. It's the fact that people admitting that it exists and they don't want to admit that it exists. So that's where the problem of critical race theory is saying we don't want to teach it anymore because we don't want people that have traumatic issues of teaching it. But what about the traumatic issues of the people who suffered it? So, you know, and, okay. no, and that and that's my problem. It, it, it's almost like you're not. It's almost like people are being punished by talking about it, or people feel a traumatic from talking about it. And I, my only thought to that would be, well, think about the people who actually went through these things and are still going through them. If it's not critical race theory, if it's not systemic racism, if it's not systemic oppression, what is it? 
Tell me what, what? it is. Like, do you have another thought process for what this stuff is? Right. If it's so, sick, you know, but there's nothing else being offered to us. You know, people are saying is, it's just the, the thing is the 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 the, the, the point is you said the impact of non-teachings of critical race theory that is to imply they actually teach it in the first place you That's understand true. like 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 i i mean i don't think that 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 them taking it out the schools i think them making it a, a um making it legal or putting in a mandate to take it out the schools takes away from takes away from um i mean you studied the theory in postgraduate school. Someone said they studied in postgraduate school, but think about it. When did you have to study it? Actually, you had to actually pay to study. You had to actually pay to learn it. Um, right. This is something to be taught. They should be taught from elementary school all the way and throughout, and it should be part of every school curriculum because we were part of this this history um, throughout. This is the same way as. Um, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and all of these other founding fathers was important to the history of America. We as black folk was just as important and it should be going side by side. So there shouldn't be a situation where there's critical race theory being taught when it should just be a part of the fabric of who we are, period. You know, and that's just my, my take on that. So, I mean, they teach it, but you have to go seek it out in a sense, whereas there's a lot of things that we know about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and a lot of these other white folk that we didn't have to go seek out and learn. We actually were just drilled and taught these are the people that we know um, that was good people. So, you know, not to knock what you were saying, sis, but, um, you know, that was just basically my thought on that. It's just, you know, it's 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 taught. But, yeah, look, you know, it's almost have to be a, a, a it shouldn't be a college, a college course. It should be something that, you know that even a kindergarten or a first grader would understand, you know, what we've been through and, you know, how to shake ourselves out of it. But stop talking because Ms. Tanisha is going to have a point on this as well, do you? I, I was just going to say that, you know, uh, before even getting to uh, critical race theory, um, you know, just black history period is not taught in the in the school systems and working in a school uh, i know for a fact I, i'm the person that purchases the curriculum um we were told that this year we're not purchasing any black history anything mm. because they want to start teaching about the holocaust um uh, after speaking with my grandfather who lives in mississippi um and my cousin who is the superintendent of the mississippi board there has been a vote for the Mississippi school system that they will not be teaching black history this year mm -hmm. and going forward, you know, they want to teach about the Holocaust. And, and so the question now I think is, well, why, why not teach about, you know, the, the majority of the country, you know, why not, you know, we built, we are a part just as much, just as much as part of the fabric as, you know, Jewish people, as the white people, as Asian people. Indeed. Um, Alicia Buh said that rejecting it is equivalent to denying its existence. I'm not rejecting it at all. I, 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 I embrace it being here. I embrace that it's being taught. I embrace that, um, that they, you know, that it's highlighted. What I'm not embracing is the fact that they're able to take it from us as if it was something that should be taken from us because we stand, like someone said, we, we in their country. This is our country. In a sense, I mean, yes, they were here. They were here. There was people here before them. We already spoke to that. We already spoke to the to the indigenous people that were here before them, 
they came here and they dominated. They did their little, you know, they did their little cruel things and all that other stuff. And then here we come, you know, but we're here. You know what I mean? And they are embarrassed. And that's a big key to why they want to erase the whole thought of critical race theory and not have it be a problem because then they would have to highlight all the things that they've done to us, you know? Right. Let me piggyback off that comment as well. I think yes, it's, I, it, it, I think it's, I think it's that they also want to, they're ashamed of the truth. They're embarrassed of speaking the truth. Yeah. Like, yes. If you want to teach, like, let's take the Mississippi school board, for example, you want to focus on the Holocaust. That's in their eyes is a completed story from start to finish. They mm-hmm. did the trauma they suffered and they were rep- rep- uh, rep- uh, they give reparations for it. Our story's not completed yet. Right. So it's one of those things where you look at it and go, they can't tell a complete story because there's still more chapters to it. So I can understand why you have that mindset of white teaching the Holocaust because it looks good on paper. It's mm-hmm. a story from beginning to end and what mm-hmm. they're doing now. So, you know, it makes, it makes sense to me why they would want to teach the Holocaust as opposed to the African-American Holocaust. Because really- it's done. Because the Holocaust is done. The oppression of the Jews is done. Um, their friends, their kumbaya. And so it's a, it's a happy ending to that story. I right. get exactly where you're coming from, you know. Yeah. And with us, there's still a problem. And you can't sit there and say, okay, I'm going to teach about a problem and not fix it's it at the same time. And it's right. And fixing it. Right. There's no okay. solutions that's yeah. being offered yet. They can't offer any solutions to the problem. So... It's still going to develop angst. It's still going to develop uh, uh, problems for people. So they rather teach about something where they can say, hey, we have a beginning, we have a middle, we have an end, as opposed to something that's ongoing and continuing. That's just my 50 cents on it. But it makes sense why the Holocaust would rather be taught than the African so Holocaust. What's going to happen here is that this this particular one topic is going to take up our time for current events. And it's not a bad topic at all. I'm with it all the way because our people is writing in about it and everything else. So, Ms. Tanisha, um, real quick, what what can we do as people who have these platforms and people who are educators and you have people that's on our panel, you know, that's writing and chiming in as, as you know, they, they, they're speaking to certain things. Um, what can we do to basically... Um, keep the teachings going. Like, what? What do we? What, it, it. I mean, do we now start other organizations that's going to start to teach our kids? And how do we get our people involved in those? Because sometimes this is just plug and play. Send them to school, they learn about Black history, they don't. That's how some of these parents are. Yeah. Well, at first, you know, if I'm being honest, I, I believe that it just it starts at home. You, okay. you know, we have to start at home. That's how I learned. I didn't learn about Black history in school. I learned at home. My grandfather made sure that. You know, I knew that, you know, we came from kings and queens and before slavery that, you know, we are of royalty and, uh, right, and royal right. descent. you know, Indeed. but we don't we don't teach our kids that, you know, we don't teach our kids. Um, we don't we don't prepare them. Uh, we, we prepare them for a whitewashed world, you know, walk, walk, walk tall, but keep your head down, you know, and, and that's not, you know, what we come from. Uh, so I believe that it starts at home. I, I, I think starting other organizations, you know, it's a, it's a great thing. But what is the foundation of the organization? All right. Right. Someone had to taught, have, have, have to have taught them. Yeah. Right. You know, my grandfather always tells me, you know, it's good to learn black history in school. But, you know, it's still a white man's education. 
Right. So, so them taking it out of the schools, um, I, I mean, I guess what you're saying, basically, um, that really wouldn't matter if we're being taught at home, which probably would be the truth in a sense, because even in the schools, it's their truth, right? Yeah. So, yeah. However their curriculum is going to go, they're going to paint the picture how they're going to paint. Like, um, I believe in the same um, documentary that I was watching, a, a white man actually said, he said, his um, take on the mass-based proclamation was totally different than what he learned about. You know what I'm saying? When he actually researched it and such like that. You know what I mean? It was basically, it was looked at, oh, well, they freed all the slaves and then all these people went out there. They didn't have no, you know, no wits about them, how to how to even behave as human beings. So, of course, we rallied them back up and, you know, and so forth and the other. And then he didn't understand the, the politics behind it and such. Yeah, so, all I'm yeah. saying is... Uh, the the Kennedys, they started teaching at home at the table. You know, white people get together, they sit around the kitchen table and they talk about what the next move is for them. Right. We don't do that. And we need to sit around the kitchen table and talk about, you know, from whence we've, we've come and what we can do to pass that on to the next generation. Yes, indeed. Joe, what do you think um, can we do aside from, aside from starting at home? Because you say it start at home. What if what if there's a home that's behind the eight ball, so to say? So let's say we don't have parents to actually know or have that information wasn't taught in their homes. You know what I mean? Because remember, we're dealing with mental issues where there were things where it's neglected. So we're neglected to understand these things. So give me one real quick point of how we can do something if you don't have it at home. Well, we need to buy for more resources where we can teach it. Um, you know, they talk about education networks and things of that nature where they're allowed to teach it. We we know the story of Cosby and how he was going to create the network for black education. And we okay. saw what happened with that. But it okay. seems like anytime we try to bring forth a solution to the problem, it gets shot down or it gets neg uh, negatized or, you know, something along those lines. Like it, it's almost as if they don't want us to learn this history of education. It's seen as a threat because it makes us smarter. It makes us more it is intellectual. It, it is a threat. You already, we are already smarter than them, but they don't want to expose that. Right. Right. Absolutely. right. We've done it time and time again. And we don't need to beat a dead horse, right? That's what they say. So, therefore, we're going to do right this minute. We're going to take a little quick break. We're going to hear from the Evening Rush Network our network, the network that has a show like Plug with Molly and Joe and all the other shows that they have on this network that speaks to a lot of things. It's all black, 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 blackity black, even Rush Network. Looking to podcast shows and do not know where to start? The Evening Rush Network can help you with that. Call us at 929-441-2417 or email us at theeveningrushnetwork at gmail.com for dates and prices. We got you for all your podcast needs. The Evening Rush Network. Tune in, subscribe, and share. All right, Evening Rush Network. One of those networks, um, you could if you're thinking about do, you know having a voice of your own, doing something like this, doing something a little bit different, doing something totally off the cuff. Um, holla at the Even Rush Network; they got all that you need. We are also sponsored by my 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 personal favorite um organization in the whole wide world, Big Apple Academy for the Arts. That is 
the organization that I'm a founder of. Joe was a part of. Um, we're doing big things in the Big Apple, um, aka Baller, sponsored by Baller. That's how you say that, Baller. All right. <laughs> hey, listen, it, it works, right? Um, we are also on Instagram at Plugged MJ. We are on Instagram at Plugged MJ. Um, we have our guest here today with us, the pleasant and beautiful Miss Tanisha Hill. Thank you. Um. Yes, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta sweeten up the pot because I'm trying to get her grandfather on at some point. Because you know, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of energy coming up from over there, especially, especially seeing, you know, your representation as well. You know, yeah, you he would love to be here. I, I, is this a phone call? Just, okay. Just phone well, call. you represent him well, so um, appreciate that. Thank um, you. Appreciation to you. Um. Listen, let's go to our topic of the day. I didn't say it earlier. My fault, my bag. I saw you talk about it, Mike. Um, Black Music Month is still here. We're about to end yep. it off. You know, we ended up Black Music Month. We started off. We had um, Mr. Billy Mitchell, right? Yes, Which Mr. Billy that Mr. Mitchell, that was a great interview, man. That was like one of the highlights, uh, you know, uh, Apollo legend. You know what I mean? I don't know. I had goosebumps after that one. Um, but this one is about the foundations of performing. Um, Joe, speak to what, what what the topic of the day is. You're talking about the foundations of performing. You're talking about black performing, black performers. Um, yeah. The black foundations. Yes, the black the, uh, from a performing and a performance ex- inspective, uh, meaning looking at how we were brought up and raised as musicians. I have a musical background. Tanisha has a musical background as well. And we were taught different. I listen um, to music. I listen to music. Uh, Molly as well. Listen, we, we all have musical, we all have musical mindsets, right? But when you're brought up a certain way in the musical music process, there's a way that you have to show yourself. You have to present yourself. You know, you mm-hmm. have to respect yourself. And being around other institutions that are not necessarily black uh, music institutions, they may not follow the same. But I know for us, we were always taught to represent ourselves a certain way when it comes to performance and performing. A lot of the things that we learned were uh, relative to our lifestyles, to our um, to the way that we lived. And I, what I wanted, what I wanted to talk about with this particular topic was one of the issues with is perform is the performance that we acquire is it natural or is it showcased meaning All right. give me one second before we go into that right quick right because we're speaking to it i want you to give me some um um um, um background to because i think i believe miss miss hill is part of a a a, 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 a institution a foundation um a performer a performers correct am i correct yes yes um, what, where, where, where are you from? Where do you, where do you work at? Uh, I am the artistic director for the Boys and Girls Choir of Harlem Alumni Ensemble. Okay. Um, and it is a group of adults who come from uh, the Boys Choir of Harlem, which is a very famous choir from Harlem, and the mm-hmm. Girls Choir uh, of Harlem. And uh, about 11, 12 years ago, the alumni ensemble was put together by our founder, Terrence Wright. Um, after the Boys Choir of Harlem Inc. Um, disbanded, uh, we got together and um, maybe about 
11 years now. No, so the choir's been together for 13 years. So I mean, 11 years now, I've been the artistic director wow. of, the, of the ensemble. That's dope. We'll speak to that about that personally later. And I just wanted to give an example of what we mean by foundations of, of performance, meaning where our people get the get the 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 the, the love and the and the knowledge and the understanding of music of performance arts. You know what I mean? We talk about music. We're talking about acting. We're talking about dance. We're talking about all kinds of things. Um, some of the origin, some of the some of the places, institutions of black music and black theater and black. Um, dance is what the Apollo Theater, correct? Am I mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anything else, yeah. Joe? Uh, you have out Al the Alvin Ailey Dance uh, Organization. Mm -hmm. You have Harlem School of the Arts. You have mm -hmm. the Choir Academy of Harlem, which me and Tanisha represent. You okay. have the Dance Theater of Harlem. You have the Chuck Brown Dancers. You know, you have a whole bunch of organizations that are in. Uh, I someday, want my, I someday want my organization, Big Appalachia Academy, right? With the same, listen, <laughs> right along with them. Listen, EME yeah. is young, but you're doing right. the same things that we were doing. Okay, you know, so you're you're a young organization, but you're still there. Like you're continuing the legacy of what organizations of the past have done. So you must be considered. Uh, Bala must be considered in there because you're still doing the work. Right. Right. As long as you're doing the work, you must be considered as a, you know, a, as an institution. You may not have the age, but you're still there. Right. People can tell stories. So absolutely. Indeed. Okay. So where are we going with it? You said you was asking the question. You said, is the is performance, is, is our performance, is it natural as a showcase? Because I was speaking to that a little bit yesterday. I'll speak to it after you speak to that real quick. I'll speak on it. Well, I, what what I meant by performance natural showcase, I'll give an example. Um, I've often frequent a lot of gospel churches with guests, people from out of the country, uh, people that don't know how the gospel experience works. And they can't believe what's coming out of our mouths when we're singing, when we're giving our um, our thoughts and our prayers and just how we're showing our, our religious um beliefs. And some of them think that it's staged. They don't understand that this is coming from a traumatic place in our lives and we actually mean what we say and say what we think. Mm -hmm. So I've had to constantly tell myself, oh, this is real. This is not a show. This is not staged. These are people who have everyday lives, who have everyday problems, and they are letting themselves go and they're giving their almighty praises and thoughts to the almighty, to the almighty above. And this is the result that you get. These are this is a real experience that's happening in front of them. So when they see that, it's like, oh, how come I haven't lived that experience yet? You know, or do you have to be of some type of background to experience that? So is it I, I think is natural. I think people are expressing what they believe, what they truly believe, what they truly live. So when I think I don't think it's showcased, I think uh, even I think even a showcase can turn into a natural experience for people. Right. Well, me personally, um, when I look at something, um, when I when I when I look at something like that, um, the performance natural showcase, I look at it like it depends on you know who's who's pulling the strings in a sense. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of times, I know that naturally we are more we are very one of the most talented people in this you know in this world you know in this universe. 
But then, you know, you have those who showcase us and 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 capitalize off of our off of a lot of what we do. Um, Ms. Tanisha, what do you think? As I was far as- actually absolutely going to say the same thing. Um, I was going to say that, you know, because it become because it's so natural to us, um, it is it is showcased, you know, by others and capitalized on. Um, so it's, uh, it is something that we do naturally. Yes. But it's showcased so that it can be, so that somebody can make some money off of it. Mm -hmm. And then do you think it stems from way, way back? I think it stems back from slavery time. What do you think? Yeah, for for sure. I think, I think it goes, comes, you know, from more than before slavery, you know, again, back in Africa, you know, these, what we do now is just, an English form of what we've done, what we, what our ancestors have done, you know, the same shouting and uh, praying that they, that we do now in these uh, formal churches, we did, we did in Africa. That's, that's a part of our foundation. It's what we know. It's it's our form of communication. But now, so it's communication in a sense for us, it was communication. Mm -hmm. It was how we expressed ourselves, our heartfelt um, emotions about our people about our, you know, in, in celebration and enjoy and in expressing our arts, right? Yeah. Um, but then it became entertainment. Now, now the, the now the natural sense of entertainment is our, you know, our grandparents is laughing and enjoying Joe, Joe, mm-hmm. look, Joe look at Joe on the horn, right. <laughs> Joe, you know what I mean? Okay, but then. You know, what's the entertainment? Is it talk to me? What is entertainment? Uh, but let's 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 explain what entertainment is. It like I said, it goes with the whole natural showcase situation, correct, Joe? Yes, it does. Um, black entertainment, it's it's a business. Um, what I what I mean by that is just like anything in this country, they're gonna find ways, the elitist is gonna find ways to capitalize off of it. And you look at entertainment and it's something that's easy on the eyes. It's something that worth a lot. Not everybody can do. And it's become a resource to a lot of people. Like I think people can ignore the personal value that somebody would get from it. Mm-hmm. The, meaning the natural experience that the person that's doing it gets from it and put it out there in the public and say, Hey, if you're ever feeling this way, try doing this. Not only do you feel good, but it's good to watch or it's good to understand. But people are not really taking the time to understand the entertainment process. You know what I mean? Um, so, tell, so, tell me so tell me the some of the origins of black entertainment then, like, you know. Well, give, we look at talk to me. Well, we look at the Yoruba, which is a more, more or less it's an African-based Latin um, form of entertainment. It was it was their version of gospel. You know, they they prayed, they chanted to the gods that they believed in through drums and whatever instruments of the time that existed. From there, you have American gospel, African-American gospel, which is pretty much the same thing. And those, I think, are more positive than the other. The next two I'm going to talk about, which were blackface and minstrel. Now, minstrel music was the form of music that we would do if we wanted to live on a plantation. Mm-hmm. So we're entertaining, chucking and jiving for masses. You know what I mean? That's what minstrel music was during those times. And from minstrel music, you had 
other races or other cultures that looked at it and created a blackface. Mm. You know, you look at, at Al Jolson. I always think of Al Jolson and the jazz singer. You know, a white Jewish man had a black mask, a black face on, and acting as if he was black singing black music. So that was beneficial to their time. Did they necessarily understand the black entertainment? I, probably not. But it looked good to them, and it made them money. So they were able to capitalize off of menstrual music by making blackface. Hmm. So Tanisha, um, blackface, did, did, did that do anything um, in history towards, because um, I think it was something that like, we were talking about hate groups at one time in our, in our production meeting. Talk to me about the blackface situation that I believe you were speaking to. Or was it Joe speaking to that? I think Joe was speaking to that. Yeah. You were saying the negative depiction of Afro-Americans revitalized hate groups and hate crimes. And that was the, that, that's what you said. They used the blackface to depict what they think of black people. And mentally, these people are watching what uh, what so-called black men are supposed to be doing and supposed to act like and how they are supposed to be. And that had um, these hate groups and hate crimes rise, correct? Is that what you were talking about? Well... When you look at their form, how, that form of entertainment, you see us in a way. You see us in a way of, of life, a way of culture, right? right? You look at us as dancing fools, if you will. We're not very intele- uh, intellectually competent. Um, we only think of certain ways to do things. Like It's almost like that's all we can do. All we can do is sing and dance for you. Like They wouldn't think about having us for any other... Um, any other type of profession or skill because that's what we do best. So Mm. it's like riding it until the wheels fall off. And if we're doing anything outside of that, we get questioned on what we're doing. Oh, you're not supposed to be doing that. Why don't you learn to sing? Why don't you learn to dance? Why don't you learn to entertain us? That is the main aspect. And even nowadays, when you look at it, sports is a form of entertainment, correct? Right. Right. Music is still entertainment. These are things right. that you look at. But then when you look, I'm, I'm, I'm going off, uh, off course just a little bit, but I want to l- look at the athletes that make political statements and social statements. You have a lot of people that tell them to shut up and dribble, shut up and play. That's not your place. Your job is to entertain us. Your job is not to educate us. So that's bringing a negative aspect. So society is going to look at us and say, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to be entertaining us you're not supposed to be educating us so that's what i get when i look at these groups that come out of uh, us and it's almost like they're appalled that we're able to do that or that we're doing that because it goes against what they've expect us to be so moving along a little bit real quick um tanisha um the importance of institutions of black music being that you're part of an institution mm-hmm. i want you to speak to the importance of these institutions of black music we're talking about the apollo theater choir academy of harlem alvin ellie dance dance theater harlem harlem school of the arts baller um i was actually thinking about it motown was an uh, institution of black music correct absolutely I mean, yeah. Um, a lot of black-owned record labels is institutions of black music that were muted, you know, at some at some at some time of point. Whereas, because you know, um, once they see that they can make so much money off of us, all they do is throw a little more cash at us, mm-hmm. and then we go fly into their labels. So we're not going to talk on those things. That you know, um, what is the importance of institutions of black music or the foundations of black music? 
So I think the importance of those foundations um, are again, so that you know our children can gain a sense of pride um, because they, they, you, you can, they can learn and they can do, they can be just as productive as um, any, any other person in, in society. Um, so the importance of those, um, found, those, those foundations is to build um, our kids. I can speak for myself um, for, by going to the choir academy, um, I learned how important it is to learn um, the fundamentals of music as far as like how to read music, as far as how to, uh, the theory of music, as far as, you know, the, the, the Bach and the Beethoven, you know, how they came up with stuff and their theories. Um, and I was, and I learned, I learned that, that foundation. And so then as I got older, I was able to go to, um, I was able to audition for a white conservative. Um, I didn't get in because I, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to just sing classical music. I was, I wanted to sing what I, what I had been taught, which is spirituals and gospel um, and no, uh, like it's great to know about Bach and Beethoven and all those things, but I wanted to sing, you know, gospel music. So I think that uh, the yeah, the foundation, those foundations are, you know, important. Um, I know uh, after working with some people at Dance Theater of Harlem, I know that you know those kids, you know, they take pride in learning how to dance ballet from a black ballerina. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those uh, from as far as uh, at HSA Harlem School of the Arts. My aunt, she went there and learned how to play the piano. She took pride. And till this day, at 50 years old, she remembers her black piano teacher who taught her how to play. And so the, a foundation, a black foundation, you know, in those, in this institu in those, and those institutions in this um, entertainment field is important, is super important. Um, because you just need that encouragement. And, you know, I just feel like nobody can encourage our own better than us. Right, right, right. Because I believe um also one of those um places as I'm thinking real quick um Debbie Allen has a has a has an academy as well, right? I believe. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so that's one of those places you were talking about where it's one of ours, you know, teaching teaching all of these different genres of dance and such. Um, you know, I, I have a um one of the, my little people who um dance for our program to hear me. She's all over the place as far as dance is concerned, and when it comes down to that, to that critical, you know, like as you say, the the, the critical theories of dance and all that other stuff, and the, yeah. the and out of dance, she has to go and learn elsewhere, and we don't have any type of um, 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 institutions that she can actually go and learn these things. Right. Where Bola or myself and my team is trying to change that kind of um, thought pattern. And that's important, you know, and I can only, I can speak for myself, like when you, when I go out to get background gigs for um, major artists whose um, backing companies are big labels, the first thing they ask you is, can you read music? Right. You know, right. Do you know how to, you know, do you understand what's going on? And if we, and if we don't teach our kids that, it's like, no. You know? A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. So and that's, and that's important. Mm -hmm. That's yes, it's very. It is. I, I've I've seen that firsthand. Joe, uh, why are we trying to save these musical institutions? Why are these mu musical institutions or these um 
uh, foundations of performance, so to say, um, in jeopardy. Why are we losing them? Like, what's what's going on here? And how can we save them? Well, it's gotten to a point where the people who control the budgets don't see the importance of it because it may not be beneficiary to their kind or their people that they support. Um, I'm going to say the reason why we need these institutions is for us is our true calling is to be and are to be entertainers and are to uh, be music specialists, if you will. We need to um, ride it until the wheels fall off, <laughs> if you will. That needs to be our bread and butter. So mm. what I, I think what it is, is there's not too many of us finishing. You know, we start strong, but we don't finish. Right. You know, we don't have a lot of people who get to that certain level of conductor, certain level of music specialist, certain level of uh, music colleagist, if you if you will. And there's a lot. And the thing is, there's a lot of our culture, and, and I'm speaking mostly for African-Americans and minorities. There's a lot of our culture who loves it. But I know from my personal experience, it's a lot of hard work. It's not easy. Like, to be, I've heard people tell you that they just want to become a guitarist overnight or they just want to start to sing like Beyonce or whatever the case may be, but not realizing how many years was put into that. Right. You know, I started right. at nine years old, you know, when I, when I was, when I was, when I started with the Boys Choir of Harlem, nine. And I still didn't take it too serious until I got to maybe 12, 13. But when I got to 12, 13, that's when I started understanding the foundations of music. I was able to read music. I was able to write it. I have perfect pitch. So I understand it better than most, but not everybody has that same process. Okay. And I think what we need to do as directors, what we need to do as teachers, educators, we need to let them know that there is a sacrifice that has to be made if you want to be the best at your field. Correct. Okay. It's, um, not, it's, not, it's, not just about, it's not just about wanting to do it. It's about the work that comes with it. And today's generation's not really, they're, they're not, not really comfortable with the work. Yeah, they're not built for that. Um, Tanisha, do you have any um, quick something to say as far as how do we keep our children interested in the craft? And not only interested in the craft, what are some of the obstacles that they face, that we face with trying to acquire and retain interest in the craft? Like, what is, like how is it hard for such programs such as myself who I've seen, this, I've seen that where, you know, you think you would have, you know, kids beating down the doors because it's a free program. And it's not the case, you know what I mean? We 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 looking for trumpet players. Listen, we looking for trumpet players. We looking for horn players. We looking for drummers. We got we got the instruments now. Listen, one, once upon a time we didn't have enough instruments for the right. people that we had there. Now we got more. You know, now we're having a surplus of instruments, but we just all of a sudden it's finding hard to find the kids. To, so how do we keep our children interest, interested in the craft? Tell tell me as someone who's so, trying to do so. For for me. Um, what kept me interested uh, in music was going to actual performances. So okay. I started, you know, I, I've been singing since I was uh, since I was six years old and recording. Um, and what kept me interested was going to these very places, being in the studio with um, paid musicians, or you know, and just sitting and watching um, and knowing that this is a possibility. Um, again, I don't. I just think that our kids don't see too many positive um, people doing what they can do. Um, so I say, you know, get get them to places or of 
of uh, introducing them to what they can do. So taking so them to more, I would, more, more performance, more performances, more performances. Yeah, for sure. Taking them to I would have never thought that my niece could act, but I started taking her to Broadway plays when she was uh, young, and now she just loves to watch and uh performances and she wants to pursue that so you have to yeah you got to give them something that will make them feel like hey it's worth it if you if you pick up a book or you no, i'm sorry not a book would you pick up that instrument you keep working at it but then let me show you what you can what you can be you know what you should aspire to be you know mm-hmm. show them black excellence show them what you know a great dance a great dance group looks like you know and to be completely honest you know some of these schools will allow you to come in and watch a rehearsal okay wow these kids can say like hey oh you know what i want to do that let's note that okay yeah so so because um i I agree because i i I remember in ps9 i think my sister is on here she'll tell you um ps9 was one of those schools and I think we've um, benefited from this school being as such uh, one of those schools that would take like our teachers was that that way. They would take us to Alvin Ailey. Um, they take the Alvin Ailey shows. They'll take us to the boys, um, the boys, the boys choir of Harlem, um, yeah. choir of Harlem and stuff like that. The Apollo Theater. We've we've gone to a lot of these different yeah. institutions in the heyday. I'm talking about the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, and um, it. It, it it did it did it did spark something in me. Not anything to pick up an instrument per se. I mean, you know, there were things that probably pulled me away from doing that. But in my heart of hearts, I always knew that um, community work and being part of the, the the solution to to our community's problems was always one of those things that I was always interested in. Yeah, uh, I mean, of, of talent. If you think about it, most of our kids want to be rappers. Why? Because that's what they see. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they know maybe the local rapper in their hood that came from where they are. Like, okay, he came from us. I can do that. Right. You know, so expose right. them to what we think that they should be. So uh, it's the same concepts because they see the rappers doing it up. So now you can see a dancer doing it up. You can see a gymnast doing it up. You can see a runner doing it up. Joe, right. um, what can be done to address this issue? And real quick. Just let's close us out with this um, foundations of performance. Um, what can be done to address this issue in your mind? Uh, more of us who care, more of us who support the um, the foundations of music. We need to go to the people who hold the purse strings and let them know how important it is in our communities and what it could do. Give them prime examples of people who have benefited from it and are benefiting from it. Like, don't don't uh, let it just go fall to the wayside. You know, have a strong support system. Have those who support talk about it and sh- let people know how it's working, how it's supporting the kids, how it's supporting the people, how is people people, how is people people uh, pe- keeping people working, how okay. you know, just all of these type of things. Like, if you have a strong support system, it won't die. Okay. If you have a strong foundation, it won't die. But we have to continue to allow that foundation to flourish we have to continue to support it in any ways you know that's the only way you can really grow something right if you're growing something you got to pay attention to it you got to keep it going Mm -hmm. but if you ignore it and leave it it'll die out it'll falter it'll wither right so that's what we have to continue doing and there has to be more of us maybe i'm not sure if there's a 
a black music in New York, maybe if, if there could be like a board or some type of a organization for black music institutions, we all get together and go to those who got the money and say, hey, this is why we're important. This is what we're doing. Okay. So, well, basically, you're talking about organizations like my my program, Baller, that creates. I was going to say, Baller is it. Like right. Jazz bands, jazz bands to address dying arts programs in the public education system. Uh, we the, the lack of cultural um, relevance in existing programs because we don't have that. We don't have the, the 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 people that's teaching us. Like you said, you said you want us to teach us. You know what I mean. So we're trying to introduce that to our people and the lack of resources available to families living in urban communities such as ours to pursue such learning at external private institutions because when you have all these other big institutions they their institutions they're pr pretty costly um whereas they basically just said okay we're going to put a we're going to put a price on this kind of education mm -hmm. and, and we can't reach it we can't attain it so that's why you know it's it, it's a lot of slavery it's debt slavery it's a lot of different versions of slavery but we're going to run right into our what we call the interview portion and i'm sorry that we don't have a bunch of time but we do have time because we did speak we did hear about who she is what she was doing as far as the um the boys and girls choir of harlem alumni ensemble kudos to you for what you do there um, we would have you on again just to speak to these things as well, especially when we're talking about music. Um, but how did you become interested in music? Give us that real quick. Church. I grew up in church. Uh, <laughs> my family is rooted and grounded in the church. My grandfather was a Baptist minister. Uh, okay. And I started, I started there. Well, I want to be at a performance one day. So you let me know, let Joe know, and I'm there. I want to, I want to see you perform, do it up. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, who is Tanisha Hill? Uh, Tanisha Hill is a the middle child of three girls. <laughs> uh, we started. I started singing with my sisters um, as a. We were a trio, but we started singing quartet music um, okay. because my grandfather was a gospel promoter. So we were we traveled uh, the tri-state area uh, mm -hmm. from the ages of I was six and my older sister was nine. So from six. Okay. The 15, we traveled to Tri-State every weekend singing in different churches. Uh, and then at the age of 14, I started the Girls Choir of Harlem and I became a part of the uh, a performing choir and I did a 46 state tour with them um, at the age of 17. Um, and now I'm just the artistic director, uh, well not just, I am the artistic director of the Alumni Ensemble of Harlem. And uh, we we do performances around mm -hmm. New York area. Well, we've been to Japan, China, Korea. Okay, um, that's not just around the way, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done those things, and um, so I got my start at church. Um, my my skill was honed by um, my classical voice teacher, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. Yes. So. That's crazy because you saw like that's history. Like girls, you like I, I saw the girls choir of Harlem, so I'm like, okay, I, I don't know, maybe I saw you, I don't know, but I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, maybe knows? not me. All uh, right, who knows? All right, so now um, there was a question that was um, brought up at production, and it speaks to you being entertainers, you and Joe, right? Um, over the years, as you're advancing your performing arts career. Right. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get to a point where you felt like you just didn't want to do it anymore? Like you was just like, 
I'm done. This is it. I'm 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 not doing this anymore. Absolutely. And I have another question behind that. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and for me, it wasn't so much uh, just performing um, because before I, I went to Choir Academy to learn classical, classical singing, I didn't want to sing anymore because I felt like I had already I'd sang at every church that I could possibly sing in in the wow. tri area. And I was like, I don't, I don't need to sing anymore. Uh, I want to play basketball. And my mother said, not so. So I, you know, but I did feel like, you know, there's nothing more to get out of music. There's nothing more to get out of singing. Like I've sung all of the high notes I can sing. I'm done. Um, and then also as a female in the role of leadership, I've often thought about like, nah, this is not, this is not where I want to be. Um, because this is a, it's a tough business to be in. Entertainment business is tough, especially as a female, because you're just expected to, you know, Look cute, do what we say, you know, have a slim waist and be ready, you know? And I I am just not that girl. So <laughs> Joe, do you have any questions? This is your partner. I mean, like this is your partner, man. Listen, go ahead, man. You finish you, you close us out with this one. You got any questions for your partner in crime there? Well, how did you overcome those feelings of not wanting to do it anymore? Like what kept you in the game, if you will? I have a uh, Southern black mother who told me that if I give up now, I will be giving in to what every every person who thought I couldn't do it said. So um, I, I I had no choice. Um, you know, as as the middle child, you always want to make your mama proud <laughs> because you know you I was the most rambunctious, and so I and I and I took what she said to heart, and I just wanted to make sure that. I was never giving anyone the opportunity to say I gave up. Wow. Well, I can totally relate to that. There's just times where you have a creative burnout, if you will. Like you said, doing something for anything, doing something for a long time. We're human beings. We're not robots. You know, right. we're not. You know, we, we have moments where we need to take sabbaticals or we need to just mentally prepare ourselves for the next steps in our life. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, in entertainment business where it's 24 7, 365, they don't expect you to have a turn off switch. So sure. that's part of it. So, we, I mean, I, I think it needs to be included in that. And then I think with our rest, we can come back better or come back with a greater sense of mind on how this system works, if right. you will. Um, how would you advise the young people who want to get into the industry? Um, what would you, what advice would you give to them? That's number one, who want to become musicians and performers. And how would you advise the young people who are close to quitting because they feel like it's too hard or they just can't deal with the pressure? Uh, I think the answer to that all the way around is stick with it. You know, I would tell the young person who's who's coming up, stick with it. Um, try to find someone uh, locally who you can reach out to who is uh, doing what what you want to do. Um, there are a lot of organizations uh, like Bala that are offering, you know, these students, these kids um, opportunities to be a part of something artistically great. So find something, uh, find an artistic you know, program that will assist you in um, being great. And to that person who is um, suffering from fatigue, entertainment fatigue, and you just want to quit, um, it's worth it's worth fighting for. It's okay. worth fighting for. Okay. 
Because this is entertainment as well, too. Uh, yeah, I, sometimes you sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. So I, I get it. Yeah. I get it being our infancy. So I'm like, okay, I, I, I understand exactly what y'all talking about. Because sometimes you be like, ooh, do I got it this week? And then all of a sudden you get in front of that, you get in front of that camera, and you start talking, and it just comes to you. You know? Yeah. Because then you have to also think about if you don't do it that week, there'll be somebody looking and say, like, well, what happened? Right. Right. Indeed. Indeed. Joe, anything, any closing words real quick, Joe? Uh, as we close, um, this has been a great Black Music History Month for us. And I'm grateful to have you on our show, Tanisha, because, you know, I know your story and I want other people to know your story. For those who are listening, for those who will go back to this one day and say, hey, if that's how she felt, maybe that's where I can end up, you know? So I'm very grateful for you to be uh, guest on our show today and we would love to have you on in the future just to um bake bread if you will you know shoot the bread yeah. other yeah. things is you're not just an entertainer you're an educator so i appreciate right. there are other things that we could talk about where you it'll be just as impactful as what you've talked about today right right because we are, yeah because you know we don't just bring in our, our our people just to do an interview. You know you got to say something. You know, what you know about what's going on in this world. You know, right? I, mean, sure. it, I appreciate you because we, I mean we could just stay and say, okay, this is this is so and so. What do you do? Why do you do it? And all the other cliches. Yeah. But yeah. I think it 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 shows more in, into how you speak to the topics. You know that you're involved and you want to be involved and you're thoroughly involved and I appreciate you, my dear. Thank you Thank very you. much. For being Thank you guys here. so much for having me for this no time. Doubt. No doubt, and we will see you again. And Thank this you. this is plugged with Molly and Joe, the Mental Warriors. Everybody, peace, peace, peace.